Before we step into the time of the judges, I want to bring something to the listener's attention. If you look at the book of Judges, it is not written chronologically. Really, it's not. All of the judges are, but the final three chapters are more like an appendix to express the immorality and godlessness of this time period. So this makes our chronological tour of the book of Judges timeline very interesting. To start Judges, we have to first preface the book by the account of the priestly sellout with the tribe of Dan, and what most agree to be the idolatry of Moses' grandson, Jonathan, the son of Jershom. This sellout is one of the best ways to explain the godlessness of this age for Israel. The sellout occurs prior to or during the time period of the judge Othniel's rule. Next comes Ehud, who rules for 80 years. And within this time period is the sodomy of Benjamin and the near destruction of this tribe and the book of Ruth, a golden age for Egypt under Pharaoh Ramses II and the battle of Kadesh against the Hittite empire right inside of Israel. The mysterious judge Shamgar as well is during the time period of the judge Ehud, as well as the Bronze Age collapse with the fall of Troy, Mycenae, and the collapse of the Hittite Empire. Multiple timelines are overlapping here during this book of the Bible, and we'll try to look at all the the empires of the world as well. So it's going to be a delight for history lovers because we're going to do a history stopgap as well. So here we go. We start Judges with this episode and the sellout of the Levite priesthood and the beginning of idol worship of the tribe of Dan, as led by Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. Joshua stood up on a hill, speaking his final words to the tribes of Israel. Standing in a section set aside for the tribe of Ephraim was a woman. She stood with the women of her tribe wealthy and established and set aside clearly by her appearance and garments. Her face was like stone as she looked at Joshua speaking to the people. Her heart set against God since the death of her husband, her eyes dark and transfixed on Joshua, or more like looking through him, so much so she failed to hear his declaration to the people, Put away your idols. So much so she thought of her dead husband, in anger and bitterness towards God. She remembered her defying words she declared at his death, At least I have his silver, and my son Micah. This is all I need. No longer will I need God or any man. Then almost waking from her distant thoughts, Joshua screamed out to the people, You will not serve the Lord. And at this, all the people, including her, stood up, and many of them, and then all of them, shouted back that statement, We will serve the Lord. But not her. She sealed her lips, for she was unfaithful. No, she would not worship the Lord. She had already decided to not worship God. She looked back at the crowd and the faithful people of Israel. There were thousands, but through them she saw her son, Micah, who stood up, and his lips were sealed as well. She could barely see him through the crowd, but no doubt in his hand, defiantly, he was holding their household gods in his pocket.
It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to King podcast. Episode 38, 10 shekels and a shirt. As we get into Judges, I want to state most believe Samuel wrote the book of Judges during the reign of King Saul. The style of the writing follows the flow of a traveling priest or prophet, for it has many statements that lend itself to oral storytelling style. In fact, I'll be reading more from the Bible in these episodes because it reads so quickly and the narrative keeps a steady flow and it's easy to follow. The book of Judges documents the cycle of sin for Israel. When they are faithful, they are blessed, and when they are unfaithful, God allows, more like Israel's sin allows, an enemy to come and suppress them. That is what makes this account so fascinating. Sin was still present in Israel in the time of Joshua, as it, and as he ages, it grows daily in the hearts of men, until it grew to outright manifestations after the death of Joshua. The account we are about to cover could have happened during the time of Othniel, or just prior to it, but I want to begin Judges with this account because it tells the level of sin in Israel, and it speaks to the originality of Israel's apostasy, the origination of idol worship in northern Israel, or in other terms, the birth of a principality. Here's the account, Judges 17. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. And when he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and cast an idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith, who made them into the image and the idol, and they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols, and installed one of his sons as his priest. And in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. All right, so this is really profound. It states that in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. So this account starts with a wealthy woman who curses her silver and then allows her son Micah to build an idol with it and set up an idol-worshipping shrine in their home. The fictionalized setting at the beginning of this episode was this woman, and Micah was her son. The death of her husband was added to explain her bitterness and unfaithfulness. So her son Micah built the shrine and appointed his son as priest, and then he found something greater. Judges 17.7 A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. And on his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. 
So the Levite agreed to live with them, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. So what we find out later is that this Levite is Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. Now there is some debate over this fact, and I will say there are many opinions because of the actual way the Hebrew is written, that it may be another person's grandson because of one of the Hebrew characters is altered just enough to cause a discrepancy. Many opinions point to the writer of Judges, most likely Samuel, was leery of smudging Moses' great name. For just to taste of this question, look up the NIV version of the Bible for Judges 18.30. And it states, Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. Look it up in the King James. It states he is the grandson of Manasseh. There are entire articles on the internet as the true identity of this character. Because he is the root of idolatry for northern part of Israel. Regardless of all this, for the sake of the podcast... We're going to go with the perspective that Jonathan was the grandson of Moses. Now here it is. The Levite agreed to be the personal priest of Micah for the price of 10 shekels of silver a year and a shirt. And to be precise, 10 shekels of silver, clothes and food, he would provide for him. So we have to stop here. I mean, a Levite who was set aside by God to be a priest at his tabernacle was traveling along looking for something to do. Why? Because there wasn't enough for the priest to do. There must have been a severe shortage of people sacrificing to God and worshiping to Him and needing help. Needing fulfillment and purpose and finances, the priest went searching for his purpose. He found a financial backing in Micah, and he didn't seem to care if it was completely against God's will. And think about this. It only took 10 shekels and a shirt for him to be completely turned away from God. It's such a pathetic story. Here's a priest entitled to the promises, all the promises of God, set aside, a tribe set aside for God. The God on a thousand hills, the God creator of the universe, was looking for sons and daughters to inherit his promises. But this priest found his fulfillment with ten shekels and a shirt. This is where we get to the spiritual concept of humanism. A definition of humanism states, The reason for existence is my happiness. It's selfish and fleshly thinking that puts man's thoughts and actions and desires over the heart of God. It justifies itself over faith. It puts logic over faith. It puts humans as the kings of the earth and world, physical and spiritual realms. In fact, it dismisses the spiritual and just puts man above all else. Jonathan the Levite, walking selfishly, was walking into his destiny, not his God-given destiny, but the train wreck prepared for him by the devil. He headed right into the collision of his will with the demonic in this scene. No longer was he a servant and priest for hire. Unknown to him, he made covenants with the devil to erect one of the longest-lasting principalities in human history. Humanism leads to sin and demonic servitude. Make no mistake about it. Alright, so this is where the tribe of Dan gets involved. So far, Micah, a man from Ephraim, 
who with his mother's blessing built a silver idol and bowed down to it daily, and we have Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, selling out his Levitical skills to the highest bidder, which turns out to be Micah. Now comes the relocation of an idolatry of the tribe of Dan. Now the tribe of Dan had an allotted inheritance by Joshua, which was in Philistine territory, and they had been unable to conquer it. Their inheritance was between Judah and Ephraim, but at the moment they were not living in their true inheritance, and they were in search of land. To be clear, they had been unable to conquer the land allotted to them, so they were looking for easy prey and good fertile land, even though this was against Moses and Joshua's wishes. But Moses and Joshua were dead, and there was no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Here is the account of the eventual migration of the majority of the tribe of Dan from southern Israel to the top of northern Israel. Judges 18.11 Then six hundred men from the clan of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtol. And on their way they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. And this is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Maenea Dan to this day. And from there they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five people who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's house and greeted him. The six hundred Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, and the other household gods, and the cast idol, while the priest and the six hundred armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. And when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they answered, Be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image and went along with the people, putting away their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, and they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites, and they shouted after them. The Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask me what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some hot-tempered men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. So Micah was robbed of his priest and idols and possessions. Now Jonathan, the priest, loves this. Now he is not the priest of a wealthy family, but a priest now to an entire tribe. Next, the tribe of Dan continues on their journey and attacks innocent people in northern Israel. Judges 18.27 Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went to Laish against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rahab. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan 
after their forefather Dan, who was born in Israel, though the city used to be called Laash. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershon, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan. Until the time of the captivity of the land, they continued to use the idols Micah had made. All the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Samuel makes it very clear the root of idolatry was this incident. Later when Jeroboam, the first king of northern Israel, would set up calves for worship, where would he put them? In two places, Dan and Samaria. Dan the city held Micah's original idol. It would continue to grow in importance as a spiritual center of idol worship and be supported and funded by wicked kings as part of their state religion. The root of idol worship and idolatry, the reason for the Assyrian invasion and collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel, has its roots in this account. This is an account of a birth of a principality. Interesting point as well when you find Revelation 7 lists the tribes of Israel to survive in times, and the tribe of Dan is mysteriously missing. To conclude this episode, I want to reference an American preacher from the 1960s. His name is Paris Reedhead. About 50 years ago, he preached a sermon on these verses in a message titled Ten Shekels and a Shirt. I'll put a link on the Facebook page to his message. His message on this account is one of those rhema words that you will find through the ages, where God breathed a message through his people. Regardless of the age, God's word can be found. Sometimes it is hard to find, other times it is easy. Paris Reedhead has since gone to the Lord. But it is this message that has inspired thousands, if not millions. Of all the messages he preached during his entire life, this is what he said about this message, Ten Shekels and a Shirt. I read this from his website. In over 50 years of Bible teaching and preaching, Ten Shekels and a Shirt is the only message I feel constrained to explain how it came to be preached. During a Bethany Fellowship summer conference in the mid-60s, I was preparing to speak at a Tuesday morning Bible hour. Upon returning to my room after breakfast to meditate and pray about the message for that morning, I felt strangely impressed that I could not deliver the message I had been preparing for this session. Instead, I felt that there was some other message that was needed which I would bring. After prayer, the message that came to mind was one that I had begun preparation for the ministry at the church in New York City, of which I was a pastor at that time. My notes were not with me, but were in a file folder in my study. An empty envelope was on the desk in my room, and on the back of which I wrote the scripture text to be used, and one or two ideas that came to mind. And with the envelope in my Bible marking Judges chapter 17, and my utterly cast upon, and I utterly cast upon the Lord, and I went to the auditorium where between four and five hundred people waited to hear from the Lord through me. I remember praying, This morning I am utterly cast upon you because I am not ready prepared. In my heart I seemed to hear his response, Well, is that so bad? Already? I delivered the message and gave an invitation. Shortly, the altar across the front of the auditorium was filled with broken people seeking God. The summer conference was soon over, and I returned to New York City in the ministry there. About ten years later, one of the Bethany Fellowship staff was in Washington, D.C., 
where we had moved, and from where we still minister. His word was, Paris, I want to tell you that God has repeatedly used your messages, but the exact message itself was preached only that once. A week or two later, Harry Kahn from Rockford, Illinois, was in Washington. He invited me to have dinner with him, and in the course of the meal he said, I buy that message of yours, ten shekels and a shirt, by the dozen to give people. God is really using it in lives. My response was that if you have a copy, I would like to have it sent to me so that I can find out what it is I have said. And in a few days, the cassette arrived. Since I don't have a tape player in my office, I put the tape into the Sony dictating machine on my desk and listened through the little playback on the handheld microphone. The element of the distance in terms of time and the distorted sound through the miniature speaker let me listen to the message with no real awareness of who was speaking. And from time to time, I felt like exclaiming, That's right. I wish I had said that. Then it dawned on me that it was my voice, but God was speaking through me. I realized that on a Tuesday morning during the summer conference, God had been able to get his message across because of my utter and complete helplessness. Here it is, just as the Lord gave it. Paris Reedhead. In his message, he addressed humanism and the history of it in his generation, and concluded the message with those who sold themselves out completely to God, in the right way, specifically the story of a few Moravians who literally sold their lives to a slave master to share the message of Jesus with slaves in Africa. And as a ship was leaving port, never to see their family again because they sold themselves to be slaves, they shouted these words, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And this became the core of Moravian missions. And this is the only reason for being. For the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss the first judge, Othniel. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com.